morning we are continuing our study in Colossians. Last week Bob took us through an introduction of this letter, and this week we'll be looking at the first eight verses. So I'm going to read the passage, pray, and then we'll get into it. So Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from the CSB. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, And he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day, God. I thank you for another Sunday where we can gather with your people and worship you together, God. I pray that as we hear your word, that we would be encouraged by your word and that your word would take root in our hearts. Um, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the book of Colossians helps us get a better picture of Jesus. It shows us how everything comes together in him. Paul works out in this book the implications of the person and work of the Son of God. Paul opens our eyes to the cosmic significance of the preeminent Christ and what that means for the world and those who are united to him. In this this passage this morning, Paul thanks God for what's happening in the lives of the people in the church at Colossae. He draws a line from the grace of God, from the grace of God to the fruit in, the, in their lives. And we're going to see what that connection is. How does the grace of God so work its way into a person's heart such that they have an unshakable faith and a Christ-inspired love in their lives? So that's where we're going this morning. And there's at least three answers to that question in this text. One, God uses people to minister his word to others. Two, fruit is produced as a result of the hope that God has given us. Three, God uses his spirit to produce change in his people. So people, hope, and the Holy Spirit. The text isn't structured under those headings, but we'll see those three themes pop up as we walk through this passage. We'll now look at the beginning of this passage. In the first two verses, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. The work of an apostle is to give a kickstart to the church, 
An apostle is someone who is commissioned directly by Jesus to speak on his behalf with his authority. His whole life now is oriented by the will of God. He, he, he is to proclaim what God wants him to proclaim. Throughout the, his, this letter, Paul will refer to his own ministry and apostleship. He wants the church to truly understand his ministry. And it's important that the Colossians understand that Paul is an apostle in order, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to keep them from error. Paul is claiming apostleship. Paul, Paul claiming apostleship is an appeal to the authority of his teachings. This is especially crucial as many of the Colossians haven't met him in person, as he says in the beginning of Colossians two, and he doesn't want to just show them. And excuse me, he doesn't just want them to know that he is an apostle, but he wants them to understand all the labor that being an apostle has meant for him. He says in Colossians 2.1, I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you. Throughout this letter, Paul emphasizes how he has worked tirelessly to proclaim Christ to the world because there is no goal for him more important. Timothy is also mentioned here as the brother. This probably means that Timothy was with Paul as he was writing the letter. It's worth noticing here that he refers to the younger Timothy as a brother here. In other places, he refers to him as a son in the faith, which is also true. Here, Paul demonstrates his his humility by showing the young man he trained as his equal. He had He addresses the Colossians as saints next in in Christ and faithful brothers and sisters. When when Paul describes them as saints, that just means holy. It means set apart. It's a term Paul uses to refer to any Christian. He uses this term in an appeal he makes later, as he says in chapter 3, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. If you look at the terms there, none of them have to do with what we do, but with what God does. He chooses us, he loves us, and he makes us positionally holy when he justifies us. All Christians, then, can be called saints in Paul's book. And that will become important later in the letter as Paul works out the implication of our position in Christ for how we live. Paul also uses the words faithful brothers to describe them. This isn't a separate group, as if there was one group of people called saints and another group of people he's writing to called faithful. He puts these words together as he greets the Ephesians, as he greets the Ephesians in that letter in a similar manner. He also puts these, excuse me, Paul is quite encouraged by their faithfulness, as we'll, as we'll see as the text goes on. It also says here that those he is writing to are in Christ, which means in the Messiah. It's difficult to understate the significance of the words in Christ wherever they appear in Scripture. It alludes to the wonderful truth of our union with Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are united to him. His righteousness becomes ours. His standing before God is ours. His access to the Father is ours. A great deal of Colossians is looking at how great Christ is and seeing that we are united to him and then understanding what that means for our lives. Christ died. 
Now, what does that mean for those who are united with him in his death? Christ rose again. What does that mean for us? Christ is now seated in the heavens, reigning at the right hand of God. What does that mean for believers? Paul unpacks all of that in this this letter, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Paul then greets the Colossians by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, this isn't just a throwaway greetings that our eyes kind of just glaze over, but it's a wonderful blessing. God gives grace abundantly because of, and because of what Christ has done, we have peace with God. That's a wonderful truth. Paul says that this grace is yours as you read this book. The Bible sometimes refers to itself as the word of grace. Whenever we pick up our Bibles and read it, we get the grace that we that we need to sustain us for our walk with the Lord as we behold Christ more through Scripture. Paul opens this letter saying that this, that grace is theirs. And not only this letter, I imagine this greeting of Paul's is probably familiar to most of you, because every single one of Paul's letters opens by saying, grace to you. The pastorals, Timothy and Titus, it looks a little different because he's, he uses their name. Um, like you would say, to Timothy, grace. Um, and, and often other words are included like peace and mercy. But Paul consistently uses this phrase before he continues with his letter. We should understand scripture as God's grace to us. And this phrase is tied with another phrase at the end of the letter. Grace be with you. So he opens with grace to you. And he closes, grace be with you. And this doesn't only happen here in Colossians. Every one of Paul's letters also has that phrase in the last chapter. Most of the words he writes in the letter are folded within these two blessings of grace. Grace to you and grace be with you. So as we read scripture, we receive grace as we meditate on all that God promises to be for us in Christ. But at some point, we have to close our Bibles and get on with our day, right? You can't just read scripture all day. But Paul wants that grace to continue to sustain you as you go about your day. Our lives shouldn't look totally different the moment we close our Bibles and the moment we stop hearing God's word. The next section, from verses 3 through 8... Paul expresses his praise to God for the Colossians. Paul recognizes that every good thing that he hears about the Colossians is solely due to the grace of God. God deserves all the glory for what he has done in them. That's why he's giving thanks to God. Now, Paul doesn't just say that he gives thanks to God. He thanks him as the father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't just generic gratitude um, that you might even see many in our culture have around Thanksgiving where they're just thankful. He is thankful as a Christian. Everything that Paul is thankful here was secured by Jesus in his purchase of us on the cross in his substitutionary sacrifice. That's the gospel. His thanksgiving is also important to understand here because of what we see this, what we see this week becomes the grounds for what Paul prays 
next week in the passage there. He says in verse 9, So, or for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. So Paul's praise about what he's heard about the Colossians leads to a prayer that they would continue in those things in endurance and patience. His thanksgiving is attached to his prayer. And that's the same in many of his letters. In verse 4, Paul tells us why he's giving thanks. He says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. He's only heard these things because evidently he hasn't been there. Paul heard these things from Epaphras, as we'll see later on. But what Paul has heard about what God did in the lives of the Colossians seems to have encouraged Paul. Let's now look at what shape the grace of God has taken at the church in Colossae. So first, Paul thanks God for their faith. Notice how he thanks God for the faith, meaning that the faith they have is a result of a work in God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be thanking God for their faith. No one can produce faith on their own. God needs to work in the heart to create faith. Faith is a result of God's grace. When God awakens a soul to the wonders of his grace, the soul puts its faith in Christ. Paul's main joy here is the object of their faith. He speaks here of their faith in Christ Jesus. Everyone puts their faith in something. Some chase after false god, gods or hope in worldly ideologies. Some trust in their money or in their knowledge or in their goodness. Excuse me. Some bank on their relationships or their popularity or even the government. The Colossian church put their faith in Christ. That's what counts. At the end of the day, all of those other things will pass away. But the question is, have they received Christ? Have they received him as their Lord, as Colossians 2, 6 says? This means that saving faith isn't just about accepting facts. It has to do with the person. In knowledge, assent, and trust, true faith clings to Christ. True faith is a receiving of, a trust in, a commitment to, a leaning on, a treasuring of Christ and all that God promises to be for us in him. John Calvin describes faith as a warm embrace of Christ. So that's the first thing Paul thanks God for, their faith. The second thing he is thankful for is their love. And it is a love for the saints. We saw earlier that saints is just a word for Christians. So this is a love for other believers. Paul specifically calls out this kind of love. Yes, we're supposed to love all people, right? The Bible is full of commands to do this. We're to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, love our neighbors, um, love one another. Those kinds of commands are all over scripture. And that's all good and true. But there's a particular kind of affection that we have for other Christians. Galatians 6.10 says this, 
Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So Paul says, yes, love everyone, but have a special care for the church. It's just like how we love and care for our own family more than the family down the street. For Christians, other believers are family. Because we are made sons and daughters of God. Paul commends the Colossian church for their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Calvin, in a different context, explains this by pointing out that everyone is made in the image of God. He says that God has placed his stamp on them and made them a part of his family. And that's one reason why we love everyone. Because he says, God forbids you to despise your own flesh and blood. He explains that for believers, this is even more true because we have been renewed in the image of God. And we'll see that later in Colossians as well. So we have more of a reason to love the church because the church has more of God's image. For Paul, it doesn't make sense to be a Christian and not love other believers. You can't say, I love Jesus, but not Christians. Or to say, I'm a believer, but church isn't really my thing. If you love Christ, you love his bride. He redeemed the sinful, broken, unloving, God-hating people that we were. And if he, expects, if he accepts us in spite of our sin that we still do, there's no place to pretend to be better than God and say that that sin's a problem for you. So those are the two main things he thanks God for. Their faith and their love. Next, we're going to look at the purpose behind what we just talked about. Now, there are many good reasons to love, right? If I asked each, each person in this room, you would have a different answer on why we are to love. There's a wide variety of reasons to love in the Bible. We love because God first loved us. We love because God has changed our hearts. We love because we want to model the eternal divine love between the Father and the Son. We love because everything else passes away, but love is a virtue that remains. We love because God is love. We love because we see other faithful Christians love. We love because others have needs. We love because we want others to see Christ's love. We love because the Bible tells us to love. That's a good reason. But, but there are many good ways that the Bible talks about love, and you don't need to keep all of them in your head all the time, right? That's part of why we read the Bible every day. Every day, God's mercies are new, and how God draws you to himself and the strength he gives you that day might look different. But verse 5 is going to give us one motivation for this love. In verse 5, he says... It is because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. So the ground of their faith and love in this text is the hope that's laid up for them. So when Paul is thanking God for their faith and love, that he, he sees the hope behind it. There's that verse in 1 Peter that talks about how we should always be ready to give a defense if anyone asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. 
And it makes us wonder, right, if we, are live, if we are living in such a way that people would ask that question of us in the first place. Well, one way that hope should be evident in our lives is love. Anyone should be able to see a Christian love and then see it as a hope-grounded love. That's exactly what Paul sees here with the Colossians. Now, what is the hope in this text exactly? Well, there are three ways that we often use the word hope, and this is true both in English and in the original language. First, we can talk about hope as an act that our hearts do, like an expectation. For example, I hope to finish this project tonight. Um, Second, we can talk about hope as a goal. Our hope is that we make it to the state championship this year. The hope there is the championship. It's an object. Third, we can talk about hope as a person, the one who achieves the goal. For example, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. (laughs) There, Obi-Wan isn't the object of the hope. Victory against the Empire is. But he helps achieve that. So which one is it here? It seems to be the second one. The object of our hope is in heaven. That's what we are seeking after. Now what is that hope? All we know from this verse is that it's kept in heaven. Verse 27 may shed some light on what this hope is. It says this, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So with the phrase Christ in you, the hope of glory, hope appears there again. Hope is used in a slightly different sense. It's used in the third sense where we have a person who achieves the object of the hope. Here, Christ is our only hope. What does this text say he achieves for us? glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the object of the hope, the second sense. Glory makes for a good summary term of what this hope is in this passage this morning. There are several other terms around this passage referring to our heavenly hope, including inheritance and the kingdom of the Son, where we have forgiveness. There's a lot to this hope. The text also says that this hope is reserved or laid up. So it's secure in heaven. Moth and rust don't do their thing here. That's the treasure that won't pass away. When we put our faith in Christ, heaven is secured for us. Now, how does hope work as a reason for the love? How does that objective reality of a future, secure glory result in a present and active love for others? Let's keep reading. We see in verses 5 and 6 how they heard about this hope. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate 
God's grace. This hope is gospel hope. Their eyes are opened in such a way that they personally understand the grace of God, excuse me, and that produces fruit. That grace of God in, in the gospel, in the truth, centers, centers around Christ. Look with me at Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. Right after a passage on the supremacy and centrality of Christ, Paul says this, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he, our Lord Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death, there's the gospel, to present you, and here's the glory, holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from, here's our phrase, the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been, been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. The gospel is explicitly Christ-centered, and so is the hope of the gospel. The, the gospel doesn't present us anything apart from Christ. No treasure of heaven can exist apart from him. The complete victory over sin that we have, the inheritance that we will enjoy, the rest that will be ours, the abundant joy that will be in our hearts cannot be separated from Christ. He is the sum and purchase of all that we will enjoy forever. Colossians is emphatic that all things in heaven and on earth come together in him. Christ is the source and end of every good thing. And because of the infinite worth of Christ, we can give up everything, right? So the present command to love depends on the future reality of hope if that objective reality of that future grace becomes a subjective experience of treasuring Christ. It needs to be a heart thing. Love comes from a pure heart, as 1 Timothy 1.5 says. The Christian looks to Christ and all that God promises to be for us in him and is so satisfied with him and his beauty that he gives up his satisfaction with the present world. Pastor John MacArthur says this, One result of our hope is a willingness to sacrifice the present on the altar of the future, not sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate. The world wants what it wants now. The Christian has a different attitude. He is willing to forsake the present glory, comfort, and satisfaction of this present world for the future glory that is his in Christ. What makes the Christian willing to make such sacrifices? Hope based on the faith that the future holds something far better than the present. Then MacArthur quotes Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. There is nothing that we gain here that's worth keeping. That enables us to love freely. Paul continues in verse 7. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Paul has, met, has just mentioned the global impact of the gospel. The, the gospel has no boundaries on culture or people or language or personality or gender or status or anything else. The Colossian church is one case of God's grace taking a hold of people. It says that they heard it, and not only that, but they came to a personal understanding of his grace. This appreciation of God's grace is when our eyes are open to truth as it really is. The hostility of our minds and the wickedness of our heart, excuse me, become transformed by grace. That impact in the Colossian church happened because Epaphras shared the gospel with them. When he taught them the gospel, their eyes were opened to, the, to grace. Epaphras has been faithful in the work that Paul and others are engaged in and has been producing fruit. Paul sees Epaphras as a fellow slave of Christ. They labor together to serve him. We saw in other passages in Colossians 2 how Paul speaks of his own labor for the church, how he's given his life to suffer for the church. And he sees Epaphras as one who is suffering with him, and he's grateful for that. And Epaphras is the one who planted the church in Colossae, and he's the one who's reporting all of this to Paul. And verse 8 brings us back to love. And he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Love is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. He produced that love in the Colossians. They cannot take credit for it. Now, this is the only explicit reference to the divine person of the Holy Spirit in the book of Colossians. But that doesn't mean that he isn't working. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in this passage. His blessing of grace and thanksgiving centers around the Father, The Son is the object of our faith in the heart of the gospel. The Spirit awakens love in us. So Paul thanks God the Father for the Spirit brought love he sees in them, driven by Christ's work in the gospel. The whole of our redemption is bound up in the triune work. Whenever one person of the Trinity acts, the other two act as well. So when we see how he mentions that his, this love is in the Spirit, and we saw earlier that the love is because of the hope. There's no contradiction, because the Spirit is working in that. So, in this passage, we've seen how the grace of the triune God has worked in the Colossian church, such that fruit is produced. And there are three overlapping ways that we've seen that happen. One is on the level of people sharing the word of truth with other people. 
as Paul, Timothy, and Epaphras are doing here. This kind of service leads to fruit being produced all over the world, as we saw. Second, this fruit is produced by how we find Christ in his gospel appealing in the heavenly hope that we have. And third, we also saw in how the grace of God works directly. He thanks God for all the things that he hears about, and we see that their love is spirit-driven. So Paul here, as he's opening up his letter to the Colossians, thanks God for their faith and their love, and he's going to continue to encourage them as he goes on the text, continue to point them to Christ, continue to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. And that's all I have for you this morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll break up into groups. Father, I thank you for your word, God, and, and what it means to us. I pray that you would use your word in our lives to shape us and produce fruit in us. I thank you for, for all the people that you've given us in our lives, God, to, to teach us, the, the older people who, who've shown us your gospel and have helped shape our live, lives. I pray that as we go into our discussions and then the sermon after, that we would be edified by your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.